Well, let's open up to the book of Judges. In the Hebrew, the, the title is Shofetim, uh, and I'm probably butchering the Hebrew, but really what it means is judges or rulers, uh, deliverers, or even saviors. And the reason it's called that is because, as you know, the children of Israel have been going through, uh, having gone through the wilderness for 40 years and uh, all the mistakes that they had made, and now they come into the promised land and they divide up the land. The Bible tells us that in, in Joshua and other places that after dividing up the land, they never really completed their their campaigns against the inhabitants of the land that God had pronounced judgment upon. And um, and as a result of that, they, they began to intermingle with those people groups, which God had told them not to do. And so uh, therein lies a problem uh, because of their uh, lack of, of fortitude to go forward and to drive out those inhabitants, they, they, they find themselves in a snare. And, and so what God does is, as we go forward here in the book of Judges, we're going to see these inhabitants of the land, instead of, uh, they're really a thorns in the flesh of the Israelites because now they are intermarrying with them and they're serving their gods instead of serving the Lord Jesus Christ and serving Jehovah, now they're serving the Baals and all of these other gods of the other nations. And so typically what's, what you're going to see is that God is going to uh, bring their enemies uh, against them. They're going to sin and fall into sin. God's going to allow their enemies to take them captive or to be a, uh, a problem for them. And then the children of Israel are going to cry out and ask God for help and deliverance. And God, because He's gracious, He's going to do that. But then they're going to, um, and then God's going to raise up a deliverer or a savior. Uh, certainly not a savior like Jesus, but a, a savior, someone to, to deliver them. And this this process will go over and over again about seven times in the span of about 400, 450 years, which is about the length of the book of uh, Judges. And the author of this book, they believe, is Samuel. Samuel is... Um, tapped as being the author not only of the book of Judges, but of Ruth and First and Second Samuel. In fact, in uh, Acts chapter 13, uh, Paul, uh, he was in a synagogue in Antioch, and after reading the law and the prophets, it says in verse 15 of Acts 13, um, after reading the, of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent to him, saying, Men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. And so Paul stood up, emotioning with his hand. He said, Men in Israel, men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. And he says, The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land. And with an uplifted arm, he brought them out of it. Now for a time of about 400 or 40 years, excuse me, he put up with their ways in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. And, and verse 20 is interesting. He says, And after that, he gave them judges for about 450 years until... Samuel the prophet. And so we see this, this time frame really from the end of Joshua until the beginning of, of Samuel is about 450 years. And unfortunately, you know, when we look at the, the things that they were going through, it's very similar to what we go through. In other words, as the children of Israel began to fall into sin and, and cry out to God, 
and then God would raise up a deliverer and deliver them. And then after things went well for a while, they, they started going back into those uh, patterns of life again. And, and that's true for us, too, if we're not careful. You know, um, you, perhaps you've experienced this in your own life because, you know, that there's been some great thing in your life. Maybe it's a sin issue. Maybe it's some kind of difficulty you found yourself getting into. And, and, and you cry out to God, and, and He does. He delivers you. And he gives you peace, or he just takes away the the circumstance. And then, typically what happens is we enjoy that for a while, and then we fall back into our same ways again. And uh, the children of Israel were no different. And really, this book is is like that. And that's why it could be labeled a book of failure, really, because uh, that's what happens to the heart of man when he's not completely submitted to God. It's just from one failure after another because of a lack of obedience and a lack of devotion in their worship of God. And so that is what is happening in the world right now, you know, and um, and so the Lord is uh, certainly with the things we're experiencing now, He's, he's, he's waking us up, isn't He? And uh, I can't think of anything more fitting than what we're going through in America and what the world is going through than what we're reading about tonight because Certainly there are a lot of people right now that are really hurting, really crying out to the Lord and just anxious for this to be over. And, um, you know, the Lord is going to have His way in this in this thing. And um, if you remember, 9-11 was a lot like that. You know, uh, people were really hurting for a while, and then after a few weeks, they went back to their old ways, and we kind of forgot about everything. And, and, and this is one of those times in our history where I think God is just knocking on the door of our heart again and saying, where are you? You know, church, where are you? And and certainly uh, calling out to the unbeliever, you know, because they hadn't even been captured by the Lord yet in a sense, and and yet many of them are hurting, and, um, and hopefully this will be a wake-up call for them. And um, I pray that even after this thing is over with, that we won't forget what we went through during this time. And... Um, and God will have uh, brought in a great harvest of souls into the kingdom. In Judges chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, it, it, it's one of these key passages, and I'd like to read it to you because it really kind of sums up, I think, um, what was happening in, in Israel's life at this time. So in Judges chapter 3, I'm just going to read the first six verses to you. It says, Now these are the nations which the Lord left, that he might test Israel by them, that is, all who had not known any of the wars in Canaan. And this was only so that the generations of the children of Israel might be taught to know war, at least those who had not formerly known it. Namely, the five lords of the Philistines, all the Canaanites, the Sidonians, and the Hivites who dwelt in Mount Lebanon, from Mount Baal Hermon to the entrance of Hamath, and they were and, there, um, and, and, and they were left that he might test Israel by them to know whether they would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he had commanded their fathers by the hands of Moses. And so even in, you know, it's one of those funny things where that God does, you know, even because of their lack of faith and their lack of obedience, God was going to use the result of that to really try them just as he does us and he's going to he's going to use it to to mold and to shape them and in verse 5 he says thus the children of Israel they dwelt among the Canaanites the Hittites the Amorites the Perizzites the Hivites and the Jebusites and they took their daughters to be their wives and they gave their daughters to be to their sons 
and they served their gods. And so this is exactly what God had told them about that he didn't want them to do. And so there's a lot of prohibition um, uh, in this, you know, God telling them that this was going to happen, and and certainly it does. And uh, so they were accountable just as we are. In the book of Judges, we're also going to see 12 different saviors or 12 different deliverers. Um, Some have counted 14, if you include Eli and Samuel, of, uh, of the book of Samuel, but there are 12, and we're going to look at each one of those in the coming weeks. And, and if you look at, uh, if we just consider the first two chapters of the book of Judges, it's really like an overlap with the ending of the book of Joshua, because we're going to see some events in the beginning of Judges that are really just, again, a dovetail of the ending of the book of Joshua. For instance, when Joshua passed from the scene and then... Um, and then the, the, the tribes left the western side, uh, the two and a half tribes left the west side going over the river and setting up the altar, etc. And so we're going to see uh, some dovetail uh, in this in just the first couple of uh, chapters. But let's go ahead and read uh, chapters uh, chapter 1. We're going to look at verse 1 and let's read down through 26 and then we're going to go back and get into it. It says, Now after the death of Joshua it came to pass that the children of Israel asked the Lord, saying, Who shall be first to go up for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Indeed, I have delivered the land into his hand. So Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up with me to my allotted territory, that we may fight against the Canaanites, and I will likewise go with you to your allotted territory. And Simeon went with him. So then Judah went up, and the Lord delivered the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they killed 10,000 men at Bezek. And they found Adonai Bezek in Bezek and fought against him, and they defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Verse 6, Then Adonai Bezek fled, and they pursued him, and they caught him, and they cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off used to gather scraps under my table. And as I have done, so God has repaid me. And then they brought him to Jerusalem, and there he died. Now the children of Judah fought against Jerusalem, and they took it, and they struck it with the edge of the sword, and they set the city on fire. And afterward the children of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who dwelt in the mountains, in the south, and in the lowland. And then Judah went out against the Canaanites who dwelt in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kirjath Arba. And they killed Sheshai, Ahiman, and Telmei. And from there they went against the inhabitants of Debir. The name of Debir was formerly Kirjath Sefer. And then Caleb said, Whoever attacks Kirjath Sefer and takes it to him, I will give my daughter Aksa as wife. So Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, took it, and so he gave him his daughter Aksa to wife. Now it happened when she came to him that she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you wish? So she said to him, Give me a blessing. Since you have given me land in the south, give me also springs of water. And so Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. Now the children of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up from the city of Palms with the children of Judah into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the south near Arad. And they went and they dwelt among the people. 
And Judah went with his brother Simeon, and they attacked the Canaanites who inhabited Zephath and utterly destroyed it. And so the name of the city was called Hormah. Also Judah took Gaza with its territories, Ashkelon with its territory, and Ekron with its territory. So the Lord was with Judah, and they drove out the mountaineers, but they could not drive out the inhabitants of the lowland because they had chariots of iron. And they gave Hebron to Caleb, as Moses had said, and then he expelled from there the three sons of Anak. But the children of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who inhabited Jerusalem, and so the Jebusites dwell with the children of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. And the house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with him. So the house of Joseph sent men to spy out Bethel, and the name of the city was formerly Luz. And when the spies saw a young man come out of the city, they said to him, Please show us the entrance to the city, and we will show you mercy. And so he showed them the entrance to the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword. But they let the man and all his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites, built a city, and called its name Luz, which is its name to this day. And so let's go back to to verse 1 here. Uh, It's very interesting, isn't it, Uh, just to see... Uh, what the Lord is doing here. Let's go back to verse 1. It says, After the death of Joshua, it came to pass that the children of Israel asked the Lord, saying, Who shall be first to go up for us against the Canaanites uh, to fight against them? It's interesting that if they had done a thorough job, remember, he told them to go in and wipe everybody out. That was recorded for us in, in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 16 through 18 specifically. God told them to go in and wipe out every single person, man, woman, and child, uh, of those seven people groups, because the iniquity of the Amorites had gotten full. And that's what it said in Genesis 15. Um, that That's the reason why God allowed those uh, few hundred years while the children of Israel were in bondage to the Egyptians. They were there for 430 years. And all during that time, God was giving those peoples in Canaan, those seven nations, uh, plenty of time. Uh, to repent of their idolatry, to uh, repent of their disobedience and the wicked things that they were doing. But notice that it's interesting that had they done a thorough job, they wouldn't be in the predicament that they are in now. And see, the thing is, whenever we kick the can down the road, in other words, when we procrastinate and we don't do what we're supposed to do from the very beginning, we end up Uh, not finishing the job, and it comes back to haunt us later on down the road. It just seems to be the way it is in everything, in everything in your life. And and perhaps you you, you understand this, um, and I certainly do too. There's been times in my life where I, I haven't finished what I was supposed to do, and as a result of that, I find myself in a jam later on down the road. And it never pays off, does it? It never pays to... Uh, kick the can down the road and hope that, well, I'll get to it the next day. I'll get to it the next day. Someday I'll get to that, and someday I'll get to that. And God wants us to do it today. And so because they didn't do that, that's what they're, um, That's why they're having this problem. And But you know what? This is human nature, isn't it? Uh, the, the natural man, apart from Christ, is that way. He, he will always procrastinate. He will always wait and do things later. And, and even as a Christian, um, we can do that too. But there's enough uh, warning in the Bible about these things that we ought to take it seriously and to say, you know what, Lord, when you tell me to do something, I want to do it. 
and I want to finish the job. I want to do my very best. That's why it says, you know, uh, in everything that you do, in word or deed, do all to the glory of the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. And so that's really his, his heart's desire. But notice in verse 2, it says, The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Indeed, I have delivered the land into his hand. Notice that God chose Judah. Out of all the other 12 tribes, or the other 11 tribes, he chose Judah to do it. And notice the confidence that God had in, in saying it. Notice, he says, Indeed, I have delivered the land into his hand. Into his hand, Judah alone, that tribe alone, God had given them, the, delivered the land into their hand. And, you know, I love the fact that God is confident. He knows what he can do through each one of us, whether it's an individual or whether it's a people group. It doesn't really matter. When God says, I'm going to do this through you, he means what he says. And, 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 and oftentimes I, I, I can um, dishonor him by saying, Lord, I need... I need more help. And you know, what I want, you know what I think is so wonderful about the Lord is He doesn't upbraid us when we are struggling. We see that over and over in the Old Testament. Even in the New Testament, we see God's gracious hand uh, when His servants are struggling. And even when they have a little bit of faith. Remember the one man who said, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. And, and, and just the honesty of the man, Jesus said, go and your, your, your child will be made whole. You know, and so, but Judah was the kingly tribe, and God is setting really a precedent here if you see this, because underline that Judah shall go up. That's the first thing he says out of all the tribes, Judah shall go up. And why Judah? Why Judah of all the tribes? Well, it really goes back to Genesis chapter 49, if you remember when Jacob was on his deathbed, and you might want to just write these verses down. It's Genesis 49, verses 8 through 10. You remember when Jacob was on his deathbed. He had his 12 sons around him, and one of those tribes, of course, was Judah. And what did he say to Judah? He says, Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies, and your father's children shall bow down before you. And so already God remembered uh, what Jacob had said back at that time. In fact, it was God who was inspiring Jacob with those words, that those those blessings, those prophecies that were coming out of Jacob's mouth in that last day that he was alive on the earth was, was there by God. And so God, speaking through jo, uh, J, uh, Jacob, now is re recalling that very thing and saying, I want Judah to go up. I want Judah to be preeminent of the tribes because notice what it says in verse 9 of Genesis 49. It says, Judah is a lion's whelp, and from the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down, he lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who shall rouse, rouse him? And verse 10 is the key here. It says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. Now Shiloh, we know, is a reference to the Messiah, to Jesus Christ. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. And so God is setting Judah forward in this. So we go on to verse 3. So Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up with me to my allotted territory, that we may fight against the Canaanites, and I will likewise go with you to your allotted territory. And Simeon went with him. Now it's interesting, if you were to look at a map of the twelve tribes of Israel, one of the things you'll notice is right in the center, literally right in the center of Judah's inheritance, is just a small little circle 
and that belonged to Simeon. So you had like Simeon here and then Judah all around it. And so it would kind of make sense, you know, for Judah to say to Simeon, his brother, come up with me and help me. And, and when I'm done, we're conquering, conquering my enemies. I'll go with you to conquer your enemies. So it was a very natural thing for them to do. God didn't seem to have a problem with this, although it wasn't his perfect will. Remember, uh, in the previous verse, God says, I, I've delivered it to Judah's hand. And so Judah didn't need Simeon, but God didn't seem to um, punish them or upbraid them for uh, going together um, because God could have done it through Judah uh, all by themselves. And, um, and he's, he is able to accomplish the task. But because of their weakness and their timidity, he allowed them to help each other. And, and, and that brings uh, to mind a couple of phrases that we have heard over the years. And one of them is, whatever God orders, he pays for. So if God says he's going to do something, he's going to do it. And, um, and God's commandments includes the enablement, right? So when God says, I'm going to do this in and through your life, that means the enablement is already there. We don't have to worry about, Lord, am I, am I ready for this? Um, I don't feel like I can do this, Lord. You know, and all of our excuses come out, don't they? And God is saying, um, no, I, I can do it through you. Uh, you don't need any help. And in fact, if you remember, this reminds me of the very thing that happened with Moses and Aaron. Remember in, uh, in Exodus, God had called uh, Moses, who had fled from Egypt and now was in the desert, uh, for 40 years, wandering around, uh, sheep herding for his, uh, his father-in-law. And uh, God told him to go and set his people free. And if you remember, God told him to do it, and Moses uh, was, was timid about it. In Exodus chapter 4, verse 10, it says, Moses said to the Lord, O oh my Lord, I am not eloquent. I'm not eloquent. And so you can already see the, the excuses coming out. And and, and we see this in, um, in human nature, and, and certainly the precedent is here in Moses and his life. He says, I am not eloquent, neither before uh, nor since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. So I've got a speech impediment, Lord. I can't go and, and help um, do anything for your people. So the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth, or who makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing, or the blind? Have not I, the Lord... Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth, and teach you what you shall say. But he said, O oh my Lord, please send by the hand of whoever else you may send. In other words, send anybody else but me. Send anybody else but me, Lord. And so, again, you know, and, and I love God's response to this. It says, So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is not Aaron the Levite your brother? I know that he can speak well, and look, he's also coming out to meet you. And so when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. Now you shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and I will teach you what you shall do. And so he shall be your spokesman to the people, and he himself shall be as a mouth for you, and you shall be to him as, as God. And so... You know, God called Moses to speak to, um, to Pharaoh and was able to accomplish it with just Moses, even with all of his insecurities. Even with his speech insecurities, God was able to do it. 
But you notice that God allows in His permissive will. And there's always two wills. There's God's perfect will and God's permissive will. And when we settle for God's permissive will, we're really missing out on seeing God's power in full display in and through our lives. But when we settle for His permissive will, Basically, what we're saying is, I'm not quite there, Lord, so if you could just do this or do that, um, then I'll go. And, and, and many times, you see it even in Gideon's life, we'll see that as we get into the book of Judges too, that he's willing to work with us, and he's willing to work with his saints. And I love that about the Lord. He's just, he's so wonderful like that. You know, in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 and 6, this is a verse we know very well. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not unto your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge Him and He shall direct your path. And so that's exactly uh, what God wanted to do through Moses. He wanted to, um, for Moses to trust in Him in spite of all of these things. And yet Moses, in his uh, frailty, in his uh, unbelief, you know, the Lord was angry, but did he just say, you know what, I'm just going to choose somebody else? You know, that's typically what the world does. But you know what, uh, regardless of where you feel in your life, and you may feel like that too, God is, he's never through with you. He's, he doesn't want to be done with you. He wants to take what, what what's there and, and work with it, you know, because God doesn't need the talented. He doesn't need the gifted individual, but rather he, he chooses the one who is broken and the one who is willing to be used and to be obedient. And that's really all there is to it. You know, brokenness and being willing to be used by God. That, that, is, that is something that God would rather use than some guy who has all the gifts and all the talents. You know, because there's a lot of people like that in the world and they boast in, a, in themselves. But God gets the glory when a humble servant, a, a humble person... Uh, most of us, you know, God wants to do something through us and, and we argue with Him and then finally we, we surrender and we don't feel like He's doing anything and then He does something really wonderful, blows our minds, and then we really can't boast in it, right? Because no flesh can boast in the presence of God and, and He loves to get the glory and, and what a joy it is to be used by God. Isn't it wonderful to be used by Him? When, when you really don't have it all together, when you feel like this thing is going to, whatever it is, is going to be a complete disaster, and then God pulls through and does something really wonderful beyond your expectations, beyond your understanding. And that's happened in my life a number of times. And I, I felt completely uh, underwhelmed. I felt uninspired. I felt like I wasn't really in the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, feeling, feeling like, like just compromised. And, and, and God says, I just want you to do this. And then you do it. And then you see the results. And you're just like, your jaw is hitting the ground. Maybe you can relate to that along with me because I know that's happened to me as well. But let's go on to verse 4 there. It says, So Judah went up, and the Lord delivered the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they killed 10,000 men at Bezek. Notice that the Lord didn't punish them because of their lack of faith. You know, He didn't upbraid them. You know, He was very uh, kind with them. Uh, in fact, you know, the Lord is, is, is so wonderful. He's not like what people think that he is. There's so many people who think that he's just this stiff uh, disciplinarian who is just anxious to pound on people, and he's just got this iron fist in, in heaven and just can't wait to smash people and judge people. And people have that, that view of God, and it's totally wrong. And, you know, and we're reading it right now that he is not like that. His character is so different than that. 
In fact, in Exodus 34, beginning in verse 6, notice what it says. This is when God was speaking to Moses after he had broken those, uh, those two tablets of the Ten Commandments. Uh, he was going to make another two tablets. And so while he was up on, the, on Mount Sinai, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed this, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty and visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And another passage says, of those that hate me, of those that hate me. And so, God is, he's all of that. He's abounding in goodness and truth. I can almost hear Gail Irwin. If any of you have seen Gail Irwin, he would just say, abounding in goodness and truth and keeping mercy for, uh, for thousands, forgiving iniquity. And see, that's who God is. He's not some uh, uh, judge in the sky who just wants to pound. Remember that God is a God of grace. He is serious about sin, but he's very gracious and he gives much opportunity for us to turn doesn't he? In fact, I love what it says in Isaiah 42. It says, A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. And I love that about the Lord too. You know, a bruised reed he's not going to break. When you think of a reed and it's bruised and it's kind of uh, tender in the middle and it's kind of, it doesn't have any uh, stiffness in the center of it, he's not just going to break that off. And if he sees a smoking flax, you know, he's not going to quench it. He's going he's gonna to fan the flame. And that's who God is. That's his character. Do you believe that? Because a lot of people have really crazy ideas about God because they don't read the Word of God. We need to read the Word of God because it's important for us to see his character and how he deals with people and ultimately how he's dealt with us and how he's going to deal with uh, us in the future too. And he's very gracious. So verse 4, it says, you know, at the end there, it says, And they killed 10,000 men at Bezek. You know, don't be sympathetic or call into question God's character upon what or whom he brings judgment upon because we don't always have all of the facts. You know, when he brings uh, this judgment upon these men, that, that was what God had wanted all along. And, and yet they hadn't continued uh, um, in, 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 in continuing with the job of, uh, of exterminating the inhabitants of the land. And so we don't have uh, really the right to call God into question about these things, even though they're difficult for us to understand. God's judgment is just, just as His mercy is just. He's, uh, he's both things. He's a God of grace, and He's also a God of war. And sometimes we have a hard time uh, juxtaposing those two. You know, if you remember in, in Jeremiah, when the Babylonians were coming against Judah and Jerusalem specifically, there was a time you know, when uh, God was laying out his indictment really against the uh, children of Israel and Judah specifically. And there came a point where God told Jeremiah, and it's recorded for us in Jeremiah chapter 7, he says, Do not pray for this people, nor lift up a cry or prayer for them, nor make intercession to me, for I will not hear you. And that sounds like a really strange thing coming from God, right? Don't pray. I mean, is there ever a time when you heard God say to you, don't pray? Because uh, we should be praying about everything. And yet there is a, a point in time, and it's not for us to understand or to really know why that is, 
but we have to trust God. When he says the time has come for judgment, who are we to say that it isn't? You know, he is who he is. And and so we ought not to uh, come against that. And so verse 5, they found Adonai Bezek in Bezek, and they fought against him, and they defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And then Adonai Bezek fled, and they pursued him, and they caught him, and notice what they did. They cut off his thumbs and his big toes. Now, do you see God anywhere in this uh, passage telling them to do that? Of course not. This is something that the, the children of Israel did. And certainly when you cut off the, the thumbs uh, of, a, of a king and you cut off his big toes, guess what? He's not going to be able to hold a sword. He's not going to be able to be of any use whatsoever. It's sort of like hamstringing a horse. You cut the Achilles, you know, the tendon on the back of a horse's leg, you make that horse lame. And so this man, he's not going to be able to stand. He's not going to be able to hold a sword. He's pretty much uh, done, done for. He can't do anything. He can't stand. He can't hold anything. So his whole life is completely changed. And so they did that to him. But notice what it says in verse 7. So Adonai Bezek said, and this is his testimony, he said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off used to gather scraps under my table, as I have done, so God has repaid me. And then they brought him to Jerusalem, and there he died. And it's interesting because he understood that God was, this is really a retributive thing, that God was bringing it back upon his own life. You know, in, in Matthew chapter 7, we know of the golden rule. You know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And really, that's the way we ought to be, right? And I think the alternate is true, too, sometimes. When we're cross with people and when we're nasty with people, guess what? We're going to get the same thing in return. And Adonai Bezek saw this very thing coming back on his, on his life. You know, it says in Psalm 54, Behold, God is my helper, and the Lord is with those who uphold my life, and he will repay my enemies for their evil. Cut them off in your truth. And so we see Adonai Bezek falling under this same thing. It says in verse 8, Now the children of Judah, they fought against Jerusalem, and they took it, and they struck it with the edge of the sword, and they set the city on fire. Now this doesn't mean that they completely rid the Jebusites, because remember at this time, Jerusalem was the, uh, the city of the Jebusites. Uh, the city was also called Jabus, um, and so Jerusalem was where the Jebusites were, and, but they didn't finish the job because we know that later on in 2 Samuel, uh, we see uh, David uh, going up against the city, and, and we're talking about you know, some 400, 500 years later, David is going up against the city. And you remember that David... Uh, was being ridiculed by the Jebusites living in Jerusalem. And uh, David said, Whoever climbs up by the way of the water shaft and defeats the Jebusites, uh, he shall be chief and captain. And so David, he dwelt in the stronghold, and he called the city called it the city of David. And in First Chronicles, it gives us a little more information about what happened there. Uh, Joab, who was David's, uh, 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 let me see, he would be his uh, brother-in-law, I believe, yes, because Zeruiah, uh, Joab was the son of Zeruiah, and Zeruiah is actually the name of a woman. 
Um, why her name is mentioned here and not his father, I don't really know. But Joab was the one who climbed up that little shaft um, in the Gahon Spring down there in the uh, city of David, which is just that little strip of land on the south uh, east corner of the Temple Mount. And uh, when we were in Jerusalem recently, uh, we got to see that water shaft that Joab climbed up and was able to defeat the uh, Jebusites by climbing up the shaft. And it's big enough where you can actually shimmy your way up uh, because it's not, that wi- it's not so wide that you couldn't do that. And so that's what uh, we believe Joab did. And, and so that's how we got into uh, the city. But it says, And afterward, uh, the children of Judah, they went down to fight against the Canaanites who dwelt in the mountains in the south and in the lowland. And then Judah went against the Canaanites who dwelt in Hebron. It says, Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kirjath Arba, which literally means the city of Arba. And, uh, and they killed Sheshai, Ahiman, and Telmei. These three uh, gent- gentlemen were uh, heads of families, uh, and they were the sons of Anak. If you remember, Anak was the son of Arba, who was um, uh, a man of, of great renown. Um, he was the fiercest or the biggest of the tribe. And so these are his sons, or the sons of Anak, I'm sorry, were Sheshai, Ahiman, and Telmei there in verse 10. So from there, they went up against the inhabitants of Debir. And the name of Debir was formerly Kirjath Sefer. And then Caleb said, Whoever attacks Kirjath Sefer and takes it to him, I will give my daughter Aksa to wife. And it's almost kind of uh, interesting. I almost hear uh, David uh, perhaps recalling this event here um, a couple hundred years in the future when he would have Joab go up, you know, he would reward him to allow him to be captain of the guard and, and to be uh, chief of the, of the armies of Israel. And here we have the same kind of thing happening, you know, going back in time, that Caleb would give his daughter uh, to away. And it says, And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, took it, and so he gave him his daughter Aksa as wife. And now it happened when she came to him and she urged him to ask her father for a field. She dismounted from her donkey and Caleb said to her, What do you wish? And she said to him, Give me a blessing since you have given me land in the south. Give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her, notice, not only the upper springs, but he gave her the lower springs. And, and you know, there's something about this character, Caleb, that I really love because not only was he a man of faith, but he was a very, he was a hard worker he had a great uh, discipline about his walk with the Lord, and he was a very generous man. You can see that in his, you know, giving this to his daughter. He, he, you know, she asked him, you know, just give me a spring, Dad. Just give me a spring, and um, give me springs of water. And so he didn't just give her the upper springs, but he gave her the lower springs as well. You know, and he's just a very generous man. And, and what a wonderful, and this is the Old Testament. This is... Uh, a time when, you know, the people in the Old Testament, they didn't have the Spirit of God indwelling them like you and I do. You know, when we're born again, the Spirit comes into us and takes up residence, and He's permanently there. In the Old Testament saints, the Spirit of God came upon them at different times, but they didn't have the indwelling like you and I have. And yet, in spite of all that, you know, here's Caleb, this wonderful man of God, you know, demonstrating so many of these fruit of the Spirit that we see, you know, just full of faith, 
full of, uh, of life, and even as an old man willing to go up and take on the giants, you know, in the mountain of the land that he inherited, he just was one of those guys that was just, um, he just trusted in the Lord. He was just uh, like that. And, you know, don't you want to be like that when you get older? Don't you want, as you get older, just to be growing in faith rather than re being reclusive? You know, I think that's really God's plan for us, you know. And I want to encourage you, for those of you who are older, to not uh, shrink back as you get older. Uh, rather, let the Lord build you up into even, even, even more uh, usefulness to Him. Because what does that do? It encourages you as you're, you know, you've got more years behind you than you've got in front of you as far as life on this earth. And wouldn't it be awesome just to go out with a bang, you know, to go out full of faith? And, and, and here's the benefit of it, too, is your kids and your grandkids, what do they see? They see that, that faith in you. They see what God is doing in you. And boy, does that encourage them. And to me, that's one of the greatest legacies that uh, any person can leave to their son, their daughter, their grandkids, is a life that is just spent for Christ, a life that is completely... Uh, abandoned to him, a life that is given to him completely and just willing to say, Lord, what are you going to have for me now? What are you going to do with me today? And see, that's a good way to wake up, you know, to wake up in the morning and say, Lord, what would you have me to do today? Orchestrate my day, Lord. I have my plans. I know what I've got to do, but Lord, I want you to interrupt my plans if so be, if, if you want to. Interrupt me. Uh, do whatever you'd like to do, Lord. I belong to you. And, and that's a really good um, thing to do. So be encouraged, older saints. Uh, grab uh, the, the, the faith that God has given you and, and grow in it and be a light uh, to not only the world but to your kids and your grandkids. And so verse 16, it says, Now the children of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, he went up from the city of Palms, which we know as Jericho, and Jericho, we drove by Jericho recently, and we didn't go into Jericho, but it is the city of Palms. And I've got plenty, I've got hundreds of photos, literally. And as we're driving by Jericho, literally all around it and in the fields, they're still growing palm trees. It seems to be like one of those places where the palm trees are just like, it's just an optimal location for those things to grow. And, and it's in the desert. It's really kind of a, a crazy thing. I'm still amazed at it. But going on to verse 17, it says, And Judah went up with his brother Simeon, and they attacked the Canaanites who inhabited Zephath and utterly destroyed it. And so the name of the city was Hormah, which the, the name Hormah literally means uh, devotion uh, for destruction uh, or just destruction. And that's really what the name means. Uh, devotion, it means they're devoted to destruction. They're devoted to um to, to die, basically. It, it's, it literally means destruction. So in verse 18, it says, Also Judah took Gaza with its territory, Ashkelon with its territory, and Ekron with its territory. Now these three cities ought to remind you of something because there are five cities that the Philistines uh, dominated. Really, they were centers of the Philistines, you know, uh, Ashdod and Gaza and, and, and others, and Ashkelon and Ekron. These were all uh, Philistine cities. So, verse 19, the Lord was with Judah, and they drove out the mountaineers. But notice, they could not drive out the inhabitants of the lowland because they had chariots of iron. Now, again, this is not because God's hand was short, that he couldn't uh, deliver them. But again, um, you know, uh, uh, but it was because of their compromise and, and the rebellion 
they weren't completely able to to drive them out. And we'll see when we get to chapter 2 that the angel of the Lord actually uh, rebukes the whole entire nation uh, because of this, because they didn't uh, finish the job to begin with. And now they're they're dealing with the consequences of these things. We'll see that when we get to chapter 2. But verse 20, it says, And they gave Hebron to Caleb, as Moses had said. And then he expelled from there the three sons of Anak, which we read earlier in, uh, in verse 10 above. And, uh, and again, remember that uh, God had given the command to Moses uh, to give to Caleb uh, Hebron and that land surrounding that because of his faithfulness, because he was only one, uh, one of two men that came back when they were first sent into the promised land. He and Joshua were the only two to bring back a good report. And God says, that man I want to bless, and I want to give him a land uh, for him. Uh, and, and so God, was, uh, God did that. Verse 21, But the children of Benjamin, they didn't drive out the, the Jebusites who inhabited Jerusalem. So in, in Jerusalem, before David took it, a few hundred years actually, probably four or five hundred years before David finally took Jerusalem, Jerusalem was actually inhabited by Jebusites. Uh, that's why they call the name Jebus, uh, the name of the city was formerly. So they did not drive out the, inhabit, uh, the inhabitants, the Jebusites, and so they dwell with Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. At the writing of this, uh, at, the, at the time of the writing of the book of Judges, the Jebusites were still living there. And so, and they were supposed to uh, drive out um, those inhabitants of the land. Um, we're not going to go there for the sake of time, but I'd, I'd, I'd have you read uh, Deuteronomy chapter 7, uh, verses 1 through 11, and it really talks about um, God's desire initially to have them drive out those inhabitants. But I will read to you, because it's a shorter passage, in Deuteronomy 20, verse 16 through 18, it says, But of the cities of those peoples which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance, you shall let nothing that breathes remain alive, but you shall utterly destroy them. And he lists the seven, the seven nations, the, Hite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, the Jebusite, just as the Lord your God has commanded you. And why is that? Why did he want them to do that? Here's the reason, verse 18 of Deuteronomy 20 lest they teach you to do according to all their abominations which they have done for their gods, and you sin against the Lord your God. That was the reason. That's the reason he wanted them to, to, to drive them out completely. And again, they didn't do it. And, and you're going to see over and over again as we finish this chapter, you're going to see the similar pattern. They didn't drive out the inhabitants. Asher didn't drive out the inhabitants. Naphtali didn't drive out the inhabitants of the land. And they were supposed to. When they first came into the land, they were supposed to do that, but they didn't do it. And so what's the application for us in that, uh, for, for us today? Well, I think it's fairly obvious uh, we are not to give an inch to our flesh. Don't give it an inch. Because you know as well as I do, whenever you give your flesh an inch, what is your flesh going to want to do? It's going to want to take another inch. It's going to want to take a foot. It's going to want to take a yard. It's going to want to take a mile. You give your flesh an inch, and it's going to want to take a mile. And there's always that compromise in there. And the, the exhortation really is for us, and Paul said it in Romans 13, he said, and do this, knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. And I think in the time we're living right now, especially with what's going on in our country right now, in the world, it's really high time that we awake out of sleep. 
Awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. And here's the exhortation. Therefore let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let, Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy. But notice verse 14. But here's what we're to do. We're to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. To put him on like a garment. You know, the righteousness of the saints is that robe of righteousness that God wants to put around us. It's his righteousness. And he wraps that around us. And that's what we are to do. We are to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice, and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its loss. And so really that's the, um, the application for us in this part of the scripture. But then notice what happens in verse 22. And the house of Joseph, we know the house of Joseph is Ephraim and Manasseh. They also went up against Bethel. And Bethel was just on the border of, of Ephraim and, and Benjamin, uh, just about 10 to 12 miles north of Jerusalem is this town of Bethel. And it says they went up, uh, the house of Joseph went up to Bethel, and the Lord was with them. And so the house of Joseph sent men to spy out Bethel. And the name of the city was formerly Luz. And when they, the spies saw a young man coming out of the city, they said to him, Please show us the entrance to the city, and we will show you mercy. And so he showed them the entrance of the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and his family go. And, you know, I love this about the men of Israel. You know, even though they were warriors, even though God had told them to destroy um, it seems that um, God uh, allowed them to, to demonstrate mercy to this man because it actually helped them. Um, but it's interesting that they kept their word to the man. Whether they were right or wrong in making the promise to the man, they were honorable to their word. And, and, I, and I love that because it, it reminds me of in, um, in the book of Joshua, when the two spies went into Jericho, and remember they made the promise to Rahab that if you keep us safe here, you know, we will spare you when we come back to destroy the city. You know, just put the scarlet line outside the window and we'll know anybody in the house will be safe, but we can't guarantee anybody else outside of the house they're going to be destroyed. And so she did. You know, she kept that promise and they kept their promise. And I, and I love that, you know, that, that, that there was a time in our country when a man's word was his bond. I mean, a handshake could be shaken, a word could be spoken. There wasn't any need for contracts. There wasn't any need for lawyers. Um, it was just something that, um, you know, men just did. And, and now we don't live in those days. Now everything has to be a contract and everything has to be in writing. And all the lawyers have to get out their little spectacles and look at the fine print. And it's just kind of an ugly thing that we've gotten ourselves into. But notice in verse 26, it says, The man went to the land of the Hittites, and he built a city, and he called its name Luz, where it is, uh, which is the name of it to this day. However, uh, notice in verse 27, really to the end of this chapter, we're going to see the incomplete conquest of the land. It says, However, Manasseh, did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shan and its villages. And we were uh, we got to see Beth Shan when we were in Israel recently, and it's a really interesting city. Uh, but he goes on and he says, not only did they not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shan or Teanach and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Iblaim and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo 
and its villages, for the Canaanites were determined, they were determined to dwell in that land. And I have a picture right here before me, and I'm really not prepared to show it to you because I'm not, I'm still getting used to this whole thing here. But I have the ability, I guess, to do that, but I'm not going to do it tonight. But I'm looking at a picture that I took myself in Megiddo, and it is a Canaanite altar. And um, it's where they used to sacrifice um, human beings, babies, to the god of Molech and Ashtoreth and the Baals. And, and I'm looking at the altar. They unearthed it. And this is the altar, you know, where um, it's saying here right before us here in verse 27 that the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages, you know, they didn't completely drive them out. And, and, and one of the reasons why they were supposed to drive them out is because of this because of this altar that they had erected. And I'm looking at a picture of it right now. I'd love to show it to you sometime. But it's where they used to do these kinds of wicked things. And God wanted to judge them for the hundreds of years that they were doing this. And yet they didn't drive out the inhabitants. So going on in verse 28, it says, And it came to pass, when Israel was strong, that they put the Canaanites under tribute. And did you ever wonder where they got this idea of putting the Canaanites under tribute. In other words, making them slaves. Um, you know, in our, uh, in our country, in our world today, you know, when we talk about slavery, it has a connotation to it. And um, it's an ugly thing because of uh, things that happened early in our country's history uh, with African-American slaves and the, poor, the way that they were brutalized, some, many of them. Some were treated well, but um, we hear of the horror stories of plantation owners who, who, who beat them and killed them and treated them less than human. But instead of killing these uh, Canaanites, what they would do is they would just make them slaves. They would just make them do things for them. And, but they notice in verse 28, but they did not completely drive them out. They didn't completely drive them out. And they were supposed to. God told them to do it. Again, you're going to hear this over and over again. And it sounds like a broken record, but I think there's something here for us to learn. And that is, don't kick the can down the road. When God tells you to do something, do it with all of your heart and do it to completion. Don't just do it halfway. Do it. You know, I've heard this saying that if, if, if there's... Uh, let me think of it. Um, if anything is worth doing, it's worth doing well. And especially if God told you to do it, you'd better do it with all of your heart. Do it with everything you've got, with every resource, with all your strength. You know, that's why I love to give uh, the work of the Lord my first strength. You know, even in studying uh, the Bible, um, I love to do that when I'm at my freshest. You know, I really enjoy that. But there is a human tendency. Uh, notice it says uh, in verse 28, And it came to pass when Israel was strong that they put the Canaanites under tribute, but they did not completely drive them out. Now that's kind of interesting because if they are strong, then they what they should have done is finish the job, right? <laughs> but it says here that when they were strong, instead of driving them out, they thought better of it and thought, you know, these guys are really convenient. Hey, go get me a Pepsi hey, go get me, uh, go fetch a fire, go get a fire going, right? And so they would have to do that. And, and, um, but we never must, we never should rest on our laurels, on our past achievements. And, and that's kind of what they're doing. They're just kind of enjoying the good life and kind of resting on their lees, resting on their laurels, so to speak. And, um, and it just is not supposed to be. And so when they were strong, they should have completed the job, but they didn't. But where did they learn this idea? 
You know, uh, let me just read to you uh, uh, just a few verses from Joshua chapter 9 as we're getting close to the end here. You remember when um, Joshua, when they were going to conquer the southern uh, part of the, of the area of, of uh, Canaan, when they first came into the land, uh, one of the cities in the south that they were going to come against was Gibeon. And uh, Gibeon was what they call a royal city. It was a, a substantial city, a very big city. And the men of that city uh, came and they, they deceived the men of Israel, saying that they, they had come from a long country, you know, come from a long distance, and they feigned to have old shoes and moldy bread when they really, they were just probably 30, 40, 50 miles away or something. I don't know the exact mileage, but they weren't that far away. And they deceived the men of Israel and they made a covenant with them. And so therefore, the, the men of Israel kept their word. And instead of uh, killing them like God had told them to do, to destroy them because of their idolatry, uh, they made them uh, uh, fetchers of water and hewers of wood. <laughs> so they put them to work in helping them with the uh, things of the temple, you know, fetching water and chopping up wood for the sacrifices and everything else. And so I believe this is where we get, you know, when we see these um, tribes now as they're coming into uh, the land, and uh, instead of driving out the enemy, what are they doing? They're putting them under tribute, and they learn that, I believe, all the way back from Joshua chapter 9, because whenever there's a precedent set, it's always very hard to break that precedent, and we certainly see that here. Look at verse 29. It says, Nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites who dwelled in Gezer. So the Canaanites dwelt in Gezer among them. Nor did Zebulun drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahalal. So the Canaanites dwelt among them, and notice, and they were put under tribute. Again, they were made slaves, and certainly they learned that from Joshua chapter 9, what the children of Israel did with the Gibeonites. In verse 31, And Asher, nor did Asher drive out the inhabitants of Acho, or the inhabitants of Sidon, or of Ahlab, or Aksib, or Helba. Aphic or Rahab. So the Asherites dwelt among the Canaanites. And what a sad commentary, really. That's why this book could have been called the Book of Failure, because, you know, they didn't uh, completely do what they were supposed to do. And so they dwelt among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Notice it doesn't say that they could not, it's that they did not drive them out. And there's a difference. And you know this. You know, if you cannot. That's something, you know, uh, that's one thing. But when you do not, that's an act of the will, isn't it? It's, it's something that I can do, that God has enabled me to do, that he's told me to do. And so the commandment is there, and so along with the commandment is the enablement. But when I choose to do something else, then I'm no longer walking in faith. I'm no longer walking in obedience. And so that's what they did. They didn't drive them out. Verse 33, Nor did Naphtali drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh or the inhabitants of Beth Anath, but they dwelt among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath, again, were put under tribute to them. <laughs> it, it works really well. And isn't it funny that once one person does it, you know, it's like sheep. You know, the Bible says that all we like sheep have gone astray. And one thing about sheep is when... Uh, they're very um, uh, domicile, I think is the, the word for it, and, and they're very, um, they're, they're very, uh, they, they go in, in, in packs. They, they don't like to, except for the sheep that's curious, he might go off by himself, but for the most part, they, they stayed with each other, but 
they look at what another sheep is doing and, and they'll do the same thing. All it takes is one, and we're like that. You know, when we see somebody doing something and by God's grace they're getting away with it, and we're thinking, well, I can do that too. You know, but the thing is, the thing we have to remember is that God deals with us as individuals and what He may allow in somebody else's life and give them the grace to do. Um, and just because He hasn't brought judgment upon that person then, um, you know, it doesn't give us the right to say, well, I should be able to do that too. And because when we do that, um, we're, we're completely different and, and God may come down hard on you at that time because we're not, we're, we're not it's not cookie cutter, it's not a cookie cutter relationship. Everything is an individual and God knows what He's got to do in each of us. So it's really good for us not to be looking at other people um, and sizing ourselves up. It's, it's, it's important for us to look at Jesus Christ. He is the prototype. He is the, uh, the, the, the model that we are to look at. He's the only perfect model. And if we look on this plane and we just look at each other, we're going to be discouraged. And um, it's not going to be good. The end of it's not going to be good. So verse 34, And the Amorites forced the children of Dan into the mountains, for they would not allow them to come down to the valley. And we'll see later on that the tribe of Dan, which is really over on the coast uh, in the center part of the, of this, of the uh, land of Canaan, they actually uh, end up going way north and, and having a settlement up there in the tribe of Dan. And, um, and you remember that that is where... Uh, Jeroboam had his altars of, uh, of idolatry, one in Bethel and one in Dan in the north. And then verse 35 it says, And the Amorites were determined, notice, to dwell in Mount Heres and Ajalon and in sheal Yet when the strength of the house of Joseph became greater, they were put under tribute. And so, again, we see the unfortunate thing happening. And now, verse 36, and we'll finish here. Now the boundary of the Amorites was from the ascent of Akribim, from Selah, and upward, and upward. And so, we're going to finish there uh, tonight. But, um, you know, there's a lot of things we can certainly learn uh, in this. And, and, and that is, you know, to, to be careful what we do. And again, as uh, we grow in grace, as we learn, um, it's important for us to remember that people are watching us, you know, younger people. My daughter is watching me. She's watching how I am and how I deal with people, how I deal with events. And, and, uh, and all of us have uh, kids and grandkids, and, and, and they're watching. They're watching us. And so let's be the best examples because the last thing we want to do is, is to do something in weakness or out of rebellion and, and then what happens? Just like the children of Israel we read tonight, they, they, they see these things from the past and they think, well, we can do them. And so they do. And, and, it, and it brings forth a, a harvest of weeds instead of good fruit. And God wants us to be fruitful, right? He wants us to be fruitful and, and to be more fruitful as we go forward. And so uh, let's pray. And uh, next week we will get into... Uh, chapter 2 and perhaps chapter 3 of, of Judges. And so uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, um, we do thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for the book of Judges. And Lord, as, um, as we just see the, um, the difficulties, Lord, that the children of Israel uh, were going through, Lord, how they would find themselves in, in a mess, Lord, and, and crying out to you, 
and then you raising up a deliverer to deliver them, and then, Father, having them go right back to it again. Lord, we find ourselves uh, nationally right now in the same place, Lord. We, we've been wounded, in a sense, because of, of, of this coronavirus, Lord. It really brought everything to a standstill. It's, uh, it's hurting, uh, hurting many people in many different ways, and not just physically, but just economically. Uh, Father, how we pray that you would get our attention again, Father, and may we not be like uh, the children of Israel, Lord, who are just in rebellion and not uh, not giving themselves completely to you, Lord. Help us right now, Lord, to, to to see this time that we have in history in our country, Lord, to for the church to rise, to rise up, Lord, to be strong, uh, Lord, to be examples, Lord, to be ambassadors. Lord, to family and to friends, to kids and to grandkids. Father, to unbelievers all around us, Lord, may they see us trusting in you and not freaking out and, um, and, and, and causing, um, bringing shame to your name in any way. Lord, um, help us to, to draw near to you, Father, and really get serious with you, Lord, and repent of anything that we've done, Lord, that has brought um, uh, the, the sin in our own lives, God, help us to be so aware of it and to be quick to repent and to turn from it, Lord, and to have you heal us, Lord. And so, Lord, we ask you for your help and for your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.